Today's episode of What the Fintech is brought to you by Kiranos, helping you navigate today and anticipate tomorrow. In an ever-evolving industry, banks can't always see what's lurking around the corner. Their ability to contain threats and detect emerging trends is often handicapped by a lack of comparative data. Kiranos delivers the intelligence, data and technologies needed to assess your competitive position. From comprehensive market analytics to omnichannel customer engagement, Kiranos is the partner of choice to help clients make more profitable, data-driven decisions faster. For additional information, you can visit kiranos.com. Hello and welcome to What the Fintech, the podcast from the team behind Fintech Futures and the Banking Technology Magazine. I'm Alex Hamilton, Deputy Editor of Fintech Futures, and joining me for this episode is Soraya Randawa, Head of Omnichannel Experience at Kiranos, and Sarah Welch, Managing Director at Kiranos. Welcome to the show, both of you. Uh, we'll be able to chat a bit more about Kiranos later on, uh, but first uh, I need to chat about uh, the topic we're talking about, which is uh, banking for the next generation. Uh, we'll be looking at how the landscape of banking has changed, what that means for both customers and providers, and whether it's a case of old Buchet, Steve Buscemi saying, how do you do fellow kids, or something more nuanced and not quite so niche as a Twitter GIF reference. But uh, first, as always, uh, we have our news in numbered segment. We've all gone out and found some interesting stats or news stories with some good numbers in them to talk about. As per usual, it's, it's traditional for our, our guests to go first. Uh, we have two today, uh, but so perhaps, uh, Sarai, you'd like to, to go first with what stat has caught your eye recently? Well, I think uh, it's an article from AltFi, and it's in their di- digital state of market report. And most recently, uh, in the sample of 2,000 UK adults, they found that 26% said that their trust in digital banks has improved in the last 12 months. And then they said another 23% said about the same um, for large banks. Now, I know I know uh, there are a lot of narratives where perhaps banks aren't trusted or, you know, banks have been handed out quite a few fines and the banking industry has come uh, under a, a lot of um, rap front recently. Um, however, I think I find this uh, particular stat interesting in, in terms of trust actually increasing through the pandemic. Yeah, I think that's that's really interesting. And like you said, there's a lot of the conversations I've had with people over the past 12 months have been about how customers are either annoyed or uh, aren't uh, being served by digital banks or indeed the incumbent banks in air quotes, uh, and therefore are losing patience with them. But it seems that um, maybe it's the maybe they have that uh, that crisis bounce in politics, don't they, where opinion polling goes up when everyone's facing a crisis. I wonder if that's the same in banking. Well, I think the one thing that it's shown, if you think about digital banking, is that it's the transparency that it provides and and the immediacy of the information. So if you have a very reliable platform and a very reliable app that gives consumers a view of what their financial position is, you know, um, it, you're, you're, it's not the case that you know you're walking to your ATM to find your balance, for example, or right. or looking at you know going to branch and finding that information. I think most consumers have been forced to rely on digital banking, and potentially um, they could see the benefits of knowing how much money that's going in and going out. I do have to say that this is partly because if we think about the UK and the faster payment system, uh, that it it is very reliable and and also very very transparent in terms 
terms of how much money sits in your account. There's also other aspects that you can get on your digital banking app that you may not be able to get at the ATM, which is understanding what your sort of upcoming payments may be, uh, forecasting, for example, uh, what your safe to spend may be. And so I think those digital features also uh, can, can prove particularly helpful for, for customers who thinking about what's happening in the UK today, which is uh, the ending of the furlough program, mm. uh, customers who are, you know, think short of um, cash and need to manage their finances much more tightly. It just gives them that transparency and security and control over their, their accounts. And I might add here, you know, I think I completely agree. I love the, that I do think that those features and functions uh, digitally do enhance uh, a sense of trust because of their transparency. I also think as we look back over the past kind of very strange 18 months that banks have and credit unions have done a very good job of communicating uh, proactively with their customers as well, um, you know, particularly around hardship. And I think that that probably also has helped build trust mm. where, where maybe maybe a typical consumer wouldn't necessarily have felt a bank was on their side. Um, how many, many banks have handled the hardship conversations proactively, I think has had a, a positive impact as well. Yeah, I agree. I, it's, it's, um, you hear a lot of, uh, as I mentioned, there's a lot of doom and gloom around, around banking and consumer trust. And it's quite, quite wholesome news. Not, we're not used to, uh, to presenting that often on, on what the FinTech, which probably I'm going to burst people's bubbles now. With, with the stat that I, I've brought along, which is that um, uh, a recent Salesforce report has found that, uh, I mean, it says here only 63% of Gen Z's trust large companies uh, and feel they don't believe with integrity or, or take a truly customer-centric approach, but that still seems seems quite high to me. So I, there's 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 different act. I can't really speak to, to being, a, unfortunately, we, we used to have someone who was a Gen Z working at FinTech Futures, but she's since left. And I, I can no longer speak for them being a, a, a middle-of-the-road millennial so I, I wonder if that's uh, that, that's with a large one banks come under that large companies banner, and two, you know what where they may be going wrong when it comes to targeting uh, that. Specific, I mean, these are the, the the account holders of tomorrow. There will be that wealth transfer at some point. So banks and large companies need to to get on board with with understanding the communication that needs to reach these people. But what, what do you think, Sarah? I think. Um, so there's maybe two aspects to this. One is where are banks uh, reaching out to sort of their potential customer bases? And, and banks do tend to be a little bit more conservative in the choice of channels, you know, and wait for, for channels to be really tried and true and tested. Um, and if you look at something like TikTok, if you've been slow to adopt TikTok, uh, you may not be reaching the the Gen Z uh, crowd, right? Um, so I think there's one part, your willingness to experiment with new channels and new modes of getting your message out, partnering with influencers and the like. Um, and then there's the what is it that you're saying, right? And how are you talking to the the Gen Z? And And I think that this is one, again, where experimentation is everything. If you look at the brands that are finding ways to connect with Gen Z, I think they're willing to experiment a lot more with kind of how they're saying things. And, and the banking culture from a messaging standpoint has tended to be really rooted in the compliance culture, 
for good reason. But that compliance culture, I think, does tend to dampen the sort of more uh, experimental nature that might be needed to find ways to connect with this next generation. I confess I went on uh, TikTok once and uh, I will never go on it again. I felt extremely old while attempting to to understand what was going on. I've been told it's very good for for things like cooking, but I can't get past all the dancing, unfortunately. Um, (laughs) Well, I I have to say, unusually, I myself love TikTok. Um, And I'm a very unusual person in that, uh, in in the field that I work, you'll find me screenshotting uh, the financial ads that I see in TikTok. So uh, there are actually financial services companies that that advertising. The one that comes to mind to me is uh, Plum, which is the savings app, you know, the one that does saving sweeps. It's a a pretty sort of well-known fintech. And uh, they have, you know, changed the strategy where they've shown their app to uh, then putting sort of TikTok videos in there where someone's talking about, you know, how to manage your finances and in a very TikTok style and that ad comes through. So it's it's interesting to see the evolution whereby more and more uh, brands are starting to converse on TikTok. I think the other thing I think we need to think about is how are those brands communicating, as Sarah mentioned. Um, we recently just did a super quick survey on one of our sites um, called findabetterbank.com. And what was really interesting is um, the, the people who tend to come to our site are, you know, I would say between millennials, uh, Gen Zs, tends to be the younger de- demographic. And we asked them the question in terms of what's important when you're selecting a new checking provider. And about thinking a sample, about 300, um, the sort of the top reasons that they said was a recommendation from someone I know, which is actually what most people would expect, regardless of demographic, and also a brand that's well known to me. But I I think the point that it's important that Sarah highlights is how is that brand made known to the to that particular generation? How is that recommendation coming through? Is that via the old channels where the traditional banks would have played, the incumbents would have played, or is it via something like TikTok via the ad that I just talked about? Yeah, I think that that's that's an incredible point. It's sort of uh, probably the less said about uh, TikToking investors, the better. But um, the um, I remember recalling seeing a, a survey on, on Twitter not too long ago, which shows where I can be engaged. I love Twitter. But um, it, uh, it showed that um, oh, the, the best channel for, for reaching users is uh, Facebook and YouTube by a long shot. And then in the, in the, it said, oh, TikTok only like 20% of you, uh, I think it was less than that actually, uh, will, will uh, click on something via TikTok. And then in the little bottom of the, the, the corner, you could tell is where it said, you know, how did you get this data? It was by a phone poll. And it's like, well, you're not going to, the people who use TikTok and the people who answer phone polls aren't going to be a, a Venn diagram, are they? So I think, you know, there's a chance that people can, can miss out there. And I think, Sarah, your, the stat you brought with you is, uh, is very relevant to, to what we're talking about. Yeah, it is. Um, so the stat I have is really, it's about um, optimization, AI, dynamic creative optimization, and the impact that that can have on engagement overall. And so this was a a test where it was looking at creative that was optimized for a specific customer using AI selected kind of image and tone and approach and a call to action versus a a randomly selected email. And the lift in engagement from that was pretty significant, certainly in the, the folks who were already engaging 
with that particular uh, brand, but more importantly, those who were either only occasionally engaging with that brand or very minimally engaging with that brand. So there's an indicator here that how you wrap the topics that you want to talk. So if you want to introduce your brand and connect with a new generation, how you wrap that particular conversation with creative tones and images and calls to action for specific individuals based on kind of their digital exhaust does seem to have a a pretty powerful impact. Here we are in part two of the podcast. Uh, this is our more interview-styled section where we we really focus the discussion down on the, getting into the meat of a specific topic or sector. Uh, we're going to go into our main topic in a minute, generational banking. Uh, but first, I'm going to give Soraya and Sarah a chance to talk a little bit about Kiranos and their roles at the firm. So uh, perhaps, Sarah, you'd like to go first. Sure. Um, so... Kiranos is a um, a company that's really focused on providing insights and data uh, that help and benchmarks that help financial institutions navigate the challenges of transforming landscape today and also kind of figure out where should we be heading going forward. And at Kiranos, I am very focused on the digital marketing space and the data benchmarks and platforms that can help financial services marketers make the leap to the new world order of kind of digital first, marketing first. Great. Uh, Sarai, is there anything else you'd like to add about Kiranos, but also talk about your role as well? I think um, Kiranos has... One thing that makes Curious, I think, particular is the specialism in terms of working with our range of financial clients and the legacy of doing that uh, for a great number of years and continually working with them to innovate and to think about their needs for tomorrow. And I think um, as part of that, you know, my role as sort of heading up the omni-channel experience uh, part of the business, it's really to sort of help banks, credit unions, fintech firms really assess how they're interacting with customers on their channels and also understanding how their digital journeys are impacting uh, their customers and working with them to sort of develop their strategies across the different platforms. More specifically, I think what I really look at is tracking and analyzing competitors and what they're doing on their features and functionalities on a daily basis to see what they're launching, what's new, what's coming around the corner. Uh, It's particularly difficult sometimes to forecast, you know, what's happening happening and what's next. But by by providing this level of intelligence, uh, we really uh, try to sort of provide our customers with that insight and perhaps even a little bit of forewarning. Fantastic. Well, uh, as I mentioned at the top of the show, we're talking about banking for the next generation. Uh, and for those listening, uh, prepare uh, to roll your eyes uh, or hit your uh, pandemic klaxon, whatever you want, uh, because we're going to start off by talking about the past 18 months. And I want, I want to sort of frame it differently because obviously by now everyone's used to the idea that um, we've faced an acceleration in terms of digital adoption. But I think like what, what I want to ask both, both you, Sarah and Sarah, is 
even though over the past 18 months there's been an acceleration, where are we now? Are we where we want to be if we're talking about a bank that uh, was a bit taken aback by its need to suddenly go digital? Now are those banks, are those financial institutions at a place where they can be comfortable offering those kinds of services to, to their consumers? Uh, I would say... <laughs> Not, not yet. <laughs> I think that that's probably the best way to put it. Mm. Um, in you know, in speaking with our clients and the range of clients that we we've spoken to, whether it's you know at the top, uh, through to your local communities and, and credit unions, um, the answer is there's a lot of work to be done. And I think what the pandemic did was actually speed up the need for them to achieve more and within an even shorter time scale. So uh, I think it set forth what needed to be done. And therefore, you know, whilst we had seen some faster implementations that we, that we would have seen you know, taken longer, right, in terms of moving, particularly moving some organizations towards a greater scale of digital transformation, there's still a lot to be done. I would, I would agree with that. I mean, I think that we did see big movement across the board. Um, and even in something like acquisition of, of new customers, a giant shift in the percentage of customers that were being acquired and sort of brought into new products digitally. But there's still a chasm that exists between the, the quality of the relationships that are coming in through traditional channels where there was intermediated sort of person-to-person -person relationship building juice and digital only. The relationship building certainly is nowhere near uh, what it is or has been in, in more traditional intermediated channels. Uh, so that is a huge area of opportunity. Great. One of the phrases in banking that I, I feel is one that's being challenged right now uh, maybe. Uh, it depends on which side you're coming at it. People used, always used to say, you know, how do you break the chain? Uh, people are more faithful to their bank than they are to their spouse. You're more likely to stick with the same bank throughout your life out of habit uh, than switch over. Now, and obviously, there's two sides to this. You can talk about whether <laughs> faithfulness to banks versus faithfulness to spouses. There's different correlative issues going on there. <laughs> but um, do you think that that, that, is an, uh, that adage still rings true? Or do you think consumers are a little bit more I know that people can rack up cards now. You can have like a ch three or four challenger cards plus your uh, old faithful bank in the background. But do you think people are less sticky now with the accounts that they use? I think it's complicated is the answer. Um, I think overall, as we've been monitoring churn um, across the board, churn is still falling. So that means fewer people theoretically are in motion for new financial relationships generally. However, I think that the ability to open and engage with fee services digitally makes people more willing to kick the tires on more options. So I'll just give an example in my own life. I think I have six or seven options that I sort of kick the tires on and play around with. I haven't left my core bank yet, but um, I've got a roving eye, if you will. And the digital first, I think, uh, ability to open accounts and try things out and kick the tires does make people more curious and there's less friction to trying new things. So uh, it'll be interesting to see as as all things shift to digital, if that increases churn. I'm in agreement with Sarah. It is it is quite complicated, but I think I think that the question for us is really about 
primacy here and how we define primacy. So I would say sort of more traditional approach would be to say, you know, you have a lot of deposits with a certain account, you have a, a high number of products with a certain bank, a certain provider. And I think when I think about primacy from a digital perspective is I think about the word engagement. And so when I speak to, I would say, Gen Zs or even even millennials, I always get this very, very similar scenario, which is, well, most of my money gets put into my Lloyd slash Santander slash Barclays uh, slash Halifax slash Nationwide account. Mm. Um, but the app that I use day to day is Monzo, Revolut or Starling. And I think this, that's for me the, the sort of the, the bigger question, which is what does what is your faith? What does faith, faithfulness mean, actually? Um, they are most definitely being faithful to, I would say, their traditional incumbent banks mm-hmm. in terms of putting the money there. But then as soon as they sweep their money into the other accounts, they're really using, uh, I would say, you know, the challenger bank platforms as the one, you know, that they're spending um, more time <laughs> from a day to day basis in terms of management. The other aspect, that, and if I think about um, the options that I have, so that you may still retain your primary relationship, right? But I guess the question is how primary that is. You also have different options from a lending perspective. So when we think about the U.S., you know, the growth of the fintech lenders, such as SoFi and Prosper. Um, and also when we think about the mortgage space, the dominance of Quicken with Rocket Mortgage really shows you that the, the traditional lenders are, are truly challenged in terms of, again, you know, while they may maintain that sort of main bank account status, uh, consumers like Sarah (laughs) are looking at that more clearly. They have tools like the aggregator platforms to provide them with that transparency in terms of potential other brands to choose. Uh, So when we think about the rise of the likes of Credit Karma in the U.S. as, you know, a a great way to find out where else you can, um, where should I go for my lending, my unsecured lending product or my next credit card. So I think that sort of transparency is actually uh, sort of reducing what we might be considering as traditional primacy. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Soraya. And I think primacy is going to exist on a spectrum where on sort of one end of the spectrum, you have kind of best in class point solutions that, you know, individual consumers can kind of assemble together into a total package. And on the other end of the spectrum, you have a walled garden where kind of everything all under one roof, all working together seamlessly. And then you might have flavors in between such as segment focused bundled solutions. So I I think that financial institutions need to think about where they want to play and where they can play effectively on that spectrum overall yeah it's great and I, I i do find it funny how oftentimes the bank that is your your old faithful bank is can pretty much just be reliant on what bank your parents chose for you when you were a teenager and even i i think i was set up with an hsbc account when i was younger and even when i i switched and i didn't switch very far because i switched to first direct which isn't really a switch if you think about it but um when i switched i still felt like it was a, a tiny act of rebellion but uh to move on to our, our next question um 
there's this sort of ties into the first actually a little bit um, when we see banks adopting rapidly to digital changes. Um, there are probably a few out there who, and this sort of reminds me of a lot of banks' responses to to secure customer authentication and PSD two, sort of just roll out something mobile, roll out a mobile app, roll out a, a UI system that works. Uh, and then just call it a day. We've done the, the minimum necessary. We've got, we've ticked that box. Considering what we've already talked about, is that at all a viable strategy anymore? Well, uh, I think given given my uh, specialism in digital experience, the answer is no, obviously. Mm. Um, I I think what's what's particularly interesting in um, if, if we we go back to the word oh, the forbidden word, the pandemic. Um, the mobile app in itself, in terms of wrapping the basic functionality, sure, uh, you know, there are a lot of brands that have sort of basic hygiene factors, but it's just shown that, that the app needs to be a lot more than it is. Uh, one, at a, a sort of basic level, to enable users to contact and speak to someone quite easily, you know, wh- whether via video banking, making an appointment a lot easier without having to call the contact center, right? Um, having those functionalities to access someone if you're absolutely uh, in an emergency. And I think that's, I don't think it's calling it a day. The other part, which is also particularly important, is that the number of brands that are out there, which are challenging the incumbents who are, you know, updating and upgrading constantly. So if I think about Moniz, for example, they most recently had 35 upgrades. When I think about Revolut, the number of new features that uh, I get from a push notification perspective that keeps on pinging, uh, it's not calling it a day. And it's also, I think, not just about banking, Mm -hmm. right? So um, I don't think it ends there. And I think the other thing which is particularly important is communication. And I'm going to hand this to Sarah because that is also personalization within the digital channel via push notifications and alerts is going to get increasingly important. So you can't just stop in terms of just rolling out any old app nowadays. Couldn't agree more. Um, And we have um, all as consumers, very sophisticated experiences that we have in our day-to-day life, whether it's Amazon or Netflix, or if you're playing around with one of the challenger uh, neobanks, just the the experiences that you're getting are, they set a baseline of expectation. And the baseline of expectation is there's going to be continuous improvement, continuous experimentation. And from a communication standpoint, the expectation is on some level, I think that it's not an explicit expectation, but an implicit expectation on behalf of the consumer that leaving a trail of digital exhaust. And I expect that the companies are taking those clicks and actions and interactions that I'm having and basically learning about me and taking that into account into how they are going to change, adapt both the product interactions and the messaging interactions that I have. So I do think it is not reasonable to think that you can sort of set it and forget it um, in terms of of launching a a new app. It is uh, all digital platforms are evolving and expected from consumers to continue to evolve constantly over time. So Sarah, you raise a really great point there, because um, if we think about uh, Chase, who's just launched their new UK app, 
um, the, one of the most interesting things that we picked up in uh, sort of launching their journey and adding that app and opening an account to understand, you know, what, what they were doing was the very first notification that we got on the iPhone on iOS was to ask for permission to access uh, what you're doing with your other apps and your behavior on the phone. So when you launch a new app, a new banking app, they may ask you permissions about accessing your camera or potentially sometimes accessing your contact when you're setting up a PayM or a P2P payment. But Chase went straight out and said, I want to track your behavior in terms of what, everything that you're doing on your mobile phone so that I can understand you better. And to that point, another thing that they do, and I certainly have anecdotal evidence of this, is if you are transferring uh, money out of one account uh, to a non-Chase institution, Chase immediately sends push notifications and in-app communications indicating that they have an option for that that's probably just as good as what you're transferring out to. So they're using that data to serve you more productively. That's very interesting. We'll definitely see JP Morgan and, and Chase have spent a long time building that app. So I think there's uh, there's definitely a lot more interesting stuff to come from them and their interest in breaking the UK market in a heavy way. But I think one of the things we, we've just talked about is, is a really interesting point about the updates and the upgrades because i feel like the the conversation is shifting now from you know how good is your app towards uh, a conversation about specialism versus generalism we talked about revolut which is you know obviously uh, a platform that offers a range of things from digital wallet services payments fx to investment in cryptocurrency and fractional stock trading it's sort of a you know a hub for a lot of offerings, uh, and that sort of apes the super apps that you get in China with Tencent and Alipay. Is this going to be a new battleground between financial institutions and fintechs, or is it only really the purview of the of the new apps coming in and offering all these? Is this something the banks should be worried about? I think banks are absolutely worried about this. Um, so it's it's not the case that. You know, they will have been tracking and interested in what's been happening with WeChat, Alipay, uh, if we think about India as well with Paytm, and if we think uh, broader in Asia also like with Grab, right? Um, and of course, in our own home ground, PayPal. Um, so PayPal has increased its functionality in terms of all forms, in terms of also appearance and, and being able to use in context and all sorts of forms of purchase. What I think banks are doing and they're looking more closely at is using perhaps the open banking rails in, in terms of doing more uh, in the U.S. also just from the financial data exchange to do more as well. Uh, but I, I do think they are paying attention. They are thinking about adding more financial well-being, financial management capabilities, financial wellness tools. For example, we saw uh, Bank of America have a big upgrade in a sort of Q2 of this year. Um, Wells Fargo came out and said, look, this is a very important part for us in terms of looking within the financial well-being and financial wellness aspect. We have even uh, fintechs like Chime who are now sort of um, you know, partnered with Charlie, the debt management app, and probably very, very likely soon to include those capabilities within their own app. Um, so for me, that's telling me that you know banks aren't just 
sitting still. They're looking at these financial super apps. They're making those changes. And I think most notably, you know, it's not just Revolut who's in the same game, um, you know, who has that great hub that they've built where you're able to do a lot of things, whether, you know, it's trading crypto and commodities. We're seeing BBVA in Spain has been doing this constantly in terms of um, connecting to data, customers' wider financial data, using its sort of financial wellness and well-being tools within its platform. And then if I even look at when we think about in the APAC region, when we think about DBS Singapore, within its app, uh, customers can set financial goals and understand how they're going to reach retirement. So I would say most brands and most providers are very actively guarding themselves against these sort of financial super apps to add more and to provide greater value to their customers. And I think um, just to build on that, it really does come down to knowing what is the value that you want to be known for delivering to your customers, right? There, If you just chased every new, shiny, fancy innovation, you know, you get locked into a technical arms race that leads to nowhere, right? I think that the incumbent institutions have an opportunity in this moment in time to really answer the question, what is our purpose? Where are we going to uh, deliver outsized value to our customers and get out of the technical arms race and instead invest in the innovations that are truly about and aligned with why they are, you know, why a customer should choose them over the other options. So I, I think data point, what we have seen in the U.S. is the first mover on any particular innovation gets uh, a disproportionate share of the credit for that, even if there are fast followers within months of that particular innovation. So if you look at uh, two-day advance on your paycheck, um, there's really a power law at work in terms of who's getting the credit for that particular feature and function, and it's Chime. So I, I think that um, banks and financial institutions have to be very clear on what is their value proposition and therefore what's the innovation guideline, if you will, or true north that they should be innovating against. And Sarah, I think you point to a really good, um, you know, Chime's a great example. Uh, if I think of a larger institution, I would say Goldman Sachs and with Marcus. Uh, I think that for me, they've actually been selective in terms of what they've done. First, in terms of working through both sides of the balance sheet with lending and savings, not launching a checking account yet, I would say, right? Then acquiring Clarity Money and then launching uh, that sort of insights and aggregation capability into their app. And then, of course, the partnership with Apple Card, again, you know, very specific, very targeted in terms of the audience that they're going to. And then now where we've seen um, pulling it much closer to the lending play uh, that they, you know, initially started with acquiring green sky as uh, what everyone thinks will be their sort of buy now pay later play as well so but again it's not just a random purpose it's quite purposeful it's very complementary to what they've done now it's time for part three of the podcast and everyone's favorite section the fintech jail 
This is where we ask for a buzzword, an industry term, a trend, or even a company, although no one's been brave enough yet that I guess has seen or heard enough of. Uh, We'll then debate whether it deserves a place in our fintech jail, if it's already in there, whether it deserves an extended sentence, or alternatively, if uh, one of the guests wants to argue one of them out, whether it deserves to be freed. Uh, So I'm going to come to Soraya first with this one. What buzzword or or trendy topic do you wish was banished? You are Financial Room 101. Well, Alex, it's not going to be a trendy word. It's, uh, heaven forbid, it's the word bank now. Um, I'm a saying hefty that industry to take on. A hefty industry indeed. Well, I think what's interesting is uh, this particular week in September, uh, we've seen that Citizens Bank in the U.S. has dropped the word bank from its name. And, you know, if we think about Truist also, who also, you know, launched with a big fanfare, it was Truist mm-hmm. Financial. Uh, they dropped the financial from their name. It's just Truist now. So is the word bank unfashionable? Or I think you know, back to sort of our earlier conversation, are our financial institutions aspiring to more than being a bank? Uh, when we talked about the super apps, when we mm. talked about what they can do for the consumer, moving into different spaces, and also p- potentially challenging the fintechs and big tech, really dropping the word bank because of that. And thinking about the greater ambitions beyond, you know, the transactional banking that they see and also how they present themselves to consumers. Mm, I, I, that's such a big one. It's like when uh, when someone asked to put fintech in and we had to struggle because it's in our name. Um, <laughs> oh, bank. I mean, it's it's hard to tell what's more, what's cringier, whether it's p- banks dropping the name bank because they think it makes them sound cooler or the more sort of mon- the more mundane explanation, which is that it's no, it is actually no longer cool to be a bank. Um, it's interesting because I, I, I want to put it in there because when, when we present the list to other guests, I want them to see that and become incredulous. But I, I think I, I can see the position you're coming at in that. Um, but personally, for me, I think the concept of a bank dropping the name bank to seem cooler should go in the jail. I don't know what you think about that. <laughs> that that's potentially true. But I, I, I think the funniest part, what I, which I really struggled with was, well, what, what do you say? So I'm going to go put some money in the account and I'm going to take some money out. What's that activity that I'm doing? <laughs> Right. Exactly. I'm banking. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think that's it's it's a I, I think for me, the uh, to be controversial that was to be to say something where, you know, are banks thinking a very different way? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, do they think it shows their ambitions in terms of as they acquire more companies, acquire more capabilities to sort of position themselves in a different way to consumers and and to get consumers to think of them beyond that, as I said, putting money in taking money out (laughs) okay well i I, i'm gonna have i'm gonna have a think about it while uh sarah presents her word and then i'll come to a deliberation for both at at the end so sarah have you you thought of a a word that you you want to to lock away sure i think um one buzzword that i hear all the time in my day-to-day i think it deserves a nomination is frictionless um okay and and i hear this sort of obviously in the acquisition account opening phase and the what do you mean do you mean that that it that it works um that it's not you know a a painful awful process um i i guess it just um that's sort of one angle that i don't love it i think the other is what we're seeing on the back end of digital account opening is 
is, as I mentioned earlier, a real chasm in terms of the quality of the relationship. So there are um, hooks that are not, not happening in the race to frictionless, fast account opening that actually may provide value to the end customers overall, you know, asking a question, finding out a little bit more about your customers' needs. Um, all of that is missing from frictionless opening processes. So, yeah, I, I, I think frictionless is we, we get it. There's like a cluster we get in, in the fintech jail where our, they're sort of buzzwords where they're, they're just put in front of things because they, they should be the default by now. Perhaps 10 years ago, calling something frictionless was, was a signified something market leading. But at this point, uh, it should just, if it's not frictionless, then you're going to be at the bottom of the market. Everyone is frictionless at this point. So I think, uh, yeah, I think frictionless uh, can have a place in, in our fintech jail. Now, whether banks sits next to it or not, all the suspense. Um, <laughs> I, I tell you what, I think from both perspectives, uh, I think bank is going to go in there. I've, because I, I, I like the mischief of it. I like the pure mischief of it being in there for, for potential uh, people seeing that and going, what on earth? Why is that in there? And then I can say, you'll have to listen to the specific episode for it. But uh, no, I, yeah, let's put bank in there. I think frictionless goes in there for, with a proper jail sentence. Maybe bank will put in in, one, in our open jail so it can, you know, it can, it can read novels in the gardens and sort of uh, fish in the lake and things like that. But uh, definitely be under under watch from the guards. But yeah, both both can go in. That, that's my decision. Brilliant. Great. Uh, well, that's all we have time for for this episode. Thanks to both Sarah and Soraya for joining me. But before we sign off, just a quick chance to plug socials, projects, websites, etc. So we'll go ahead and do that. Um, Sarah, what, what have you got to plug? So first, um, Kiranos has a monthly review called This Month in Retail Banking, where we share insights and facts from the wide variety of benchmarks and data sets that we are looking at on a regular basis. So definitely head to kiranos.com and sign up for This Month in Retail Banking. Um, and then the other is Amplero. Amplero is an AI and machine learning platform that is all about unlocking the sort of long tail of personalization that's really hard for marketing uh, and analytics organizations to deliver against. So Amplero is another platform you can check out at amplero.com. Great. Uh, and Sarah, what about you? So um, if you're interested in uh, the insights that we've talked about and also the features I was talking about, uh, please visit uh, the Digital Banking Hub. It's our live user experience data platform, which brings uh, sort of 350 brands from across the globe, over 50,000 screenshots to really show how the digital experience is changing in terms of the features and functionalities that are out there. Brilliant. And uh as for me, you can find me on Twitter at, at ADHamilton91. Uh, I'm very close to getting to 2,000 followers and I am very, and in the process but realizing self-actualization. So please follow me on that. The next goal after that is for me to get uh, confirmed. Remember to listen to the podcast to find out my plight in terms of getting that little blue tick. Uh, if you want to find my LinkedIn, just search my name, uh, Alexander Hamilton. And as for uh, FinTech Futures, you should probably want to come to our website and check out a new report we've released about mortgages and lending and why it's the final digital frontier for banks. Uh, we went to the market and surveyed uh, plenty of market participants to find out 
um, whether they really knew their customers and what was holding them back. If you want to find Fintech Futures on socials, just search on Twitter at Fintech Futures and on LinkedIn, searching Fintech Futures and looking for our glorious logo. And if you uh, don't already know the website, www.fintechfutures.com. If you like this podcast and our other episodes, then please feel free to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcasting service of choice. And as always, we'd really appreciate it if you could recommend other listeners to the podcast and write us some reviews. Uh, we'll see you soon for another episode of What the Fintech, when hopefully someone will be trying to argue bank out of a fintech jail. But until then, goodbye. Goodbye.